0: We're going to look at our last week in our series, A Man After God's Own Heart, where we're looking at the life of David over the last several weeks. We've looked at several different aspects of the life of David, and today we're going to try to send him off with a, with a, a high note of a message, if you will. I love David. David's an interesting guy. He starts out, we read about him. He's a young man, perhaps even just a teenager, who is fighting lions and bears with his bare hands, and he is killing giants with stones and slings. And then as you watch his life progress, he he has wisdom beyond his years as he, he runs from King Saul and he knows how to handle that situation. And God leads him into battle after battle and he's victorious. He's living the Hollywood movie. I mean, if they, they really should make a movie about this guy, because it would be An inspiring movie to watch. And all these sermons that we've got to preach and talk about with him have been fun and exciting because it seems like whatever enemy David faced in life, he was able to defeat that enemy through the power of God and he had victory. I mean, he defeated Goliath. He knew how to handle a Saul and he was victorious to the enemy of the Philistines time and time again. However, there was one person that David seemed to struggle to defeat time and time again. And that was himself. How many of you have experienced in life that sometimes we are our own worst enemy? I mean, if we look over life and we say, what what bad things have happened, and we look, if we were honest, at least half the time, we are the culprit to the bad things in life. I love that meme that goes around, and it, it was the Scooby Doo characters, and it shows Fred, he's over there, they've caught the villain. And the villain has a mask, and he says, I'm about to reveal the person who has destroyed my life. And he rips the mask off, and it's himself. How many of you have been there, right? We are our own worst enemies. Today, the title of my message is The Greatest Moment. David, whom God calls the man after his own heart, makes a series of horrible decisions, He seems like the tale of two people where he does everything right, and then when he messes up, he goes all in. I mean, David is nowhere in the middle. He's either over-the-top victorious, or he is an over-the-top dumpster fire in his own life, and he commits some horrible sins that lead to chaos in his family. But out of this, we see perhaps the greatest moment of his life. We're going to be looking at him again in 2 Samuel chapter number 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me today, 2 Samuel chapter number 11. We're going to be starting in verse number one. We have quite a bit to read. We're going to read verses one through 17, and then we're going to skip down to verse number 27. And here's what the scripture says to us. It says, in the spring of that year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rebbe. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon while David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleansliness. Pause real quick. I just want to tell you what that means. What that means is, is that uh, in, in the Jewish law, when a woman went through her monthly cycle, afterwards there was a cleansing process according to law. And so what this is showing us is that when he brings her to her, she is obviously not pregnant with Uriah's baby. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah to Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked now how Joab was going, excuse how Joab was going, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet, and Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go home, Uriah said to David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Send Uriah to the front forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And David and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David along with the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Turn to verse twenty-seven. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, when you read about this passage, there's some shock to it. There's a shock factor to what is going on. The king, the man after God's own heart, has just committed adultery and murder. Think about the publicity that this would bring today. How many of you remember the OJ Simpson murder trial? I mean, it was on the news, that was the only thing on the news for months. We remember scandals throughout history and our culture, recent ones, where they dominate the headlines. This is a little bit different time, a little bit different culture. There was no media watching, trying to make a big deal, trying to get ratings. So the king was kind of flying under the radar a little bit. We would be disgusted in our day what he had done, and we make big headlines about it. Now, many of us have heard sermons on this passage of Scripture before, and most of the time I have heard it preached towards a target audience of new believers or young people. People young in their faith, and we warn them not to get caught in the snare of the enemy because sin can take you farther than you want to go, and you'll make you do things you never thought were possible. If most of us were honest and we read this passage, we think, boy, I'm glad I would never do something like that. Thank goodness I'm mature enough in my faith not to get caught up in sin like that. But the reality of this passage is that we are not talking about a new believer, David is not a baby Christian. He didn't just get saved. We are not talking about a young man that's caught up in hormones that make a mistake. We are talking about someone who had maturity in their walk with the Lord. We're talking about David, who most scholars believe was in his mid-40s by this point when he committed this sin. We're talking about the man who Scripture says is after God's own heart, the only person in Scripture to get that title talking about David, the anointed king of Israel. We're talking about David, whom the Holy Spirit came on probably 30 years before this event, and yet he still has this huge moral failure in his walk with God after all this maturity. Now, some of us more mature in the faith say, "Man, we just we don't need these messages anymore." However, when you look at the passage's context, those of us who have been serving God for a while have more in common with David than a non-believer. History is lined with men and women who have served God for years and they get caught up in the schemes of the devil. We can start naming names, but that would be unnecessary. David is just one of those examples that we have throughout the whole lineage of history. So we're going to take a few minutes with David's failure. And hopefully in the process, we can learn how to guard ourselves from going down the same road that David found himself down. Here's the thing we have to understand is that sin always starts creeping into the life of the believer. It's always trying to look for the weak spots in your life. It's looking for the little crevice to always try to sneak in. At our church in Verdigris, we had a terrible time fighting mice. It was because we li- uh, the church was right on this strip of trees, and it was just overgrown, and it wasn't on our property. There was nothing we could do about it, and mice always seemed to want to get in. And I was talking to the exterminator one day. I said, why can't we get rid of these things? And he said, because a mouse can get through a hole the size of the head of a pencil. And he said, "It it doesn't matter." He said, "You're never going to be able to keep them out." He said, "They're always going to try to find a way to get in because they can the littlest tiny crack they're going to get through." And that's the way sin is a lot of times the littlest tiny crack in our life, and the enemy will exploit that and try to open up and get into our life. So we need to be on guard. Notice the the pattern of David's life towards sin. The pattern always started with sin, us making desiring something that God has not given us. That's exactly how it started with David. Sin always tempts us to want something that God did not give you. God did not give Bathsheba to to David to be his wife, and yet he fell into temptation to take her. I want you to think over your life. Every time that we fall into sin, it starts with a desire for something that God did not give you or give me. God did not give us that woman that we're seeing on our phone. God did not give us that toy over there that we're going to spend lots of money on and we're going to gamble to try to win. God did not give us, insert blank here, and whatever sin that we do. David should have realized that he was desiring and lusting after a woman that God had not given to him, but he inquired of her anyways that's the key. He said, who is this? They told him, well, this is Uriah's wife. Now that's significant because Uriah was one of David's mighty men. It was, it was one of his best friends. He knew who Uriah was. That was a man who had served him faithfully. He was a valiant man. As we see from this passage, he's a man of character. Even when he could do certain things, he did it. Why? Because he was a man of honor. And yet David takes the first step in marring his legacy and his life by inquiring of her anyways. And that's how sin tends to work in our lives. Sin starts to creep into the lives of believers through progress. It's one step at a time. It's like a python snake and the python waits to get, for you to get close. And when you do, it ambushes you. And then it slowly starts to squeeze the life out of you and you can't get away. That's exactly how sin works. We sneak around sin, and we get close to it and sooner or later we fall into its clutches. It's got it's it's coiled around our necks and we're losing our spiritual life. It's exactly what happened to David. A series of decisions allowed sin to creep into his life until it has snowballed into something that he couldn't contain anymore. With well, this man who is after God's own heart for 40 years, anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit, ultimately Gets to a point where he commits adultery and murder. So how does sin creep into our life? How did this happen to David? If we want to be on guard so that we don't end up in the same spots that David did, what steps do we need to take to protect ourselves, to build up a wall around of our lives so that we don't get sucked down the same path that David went? Well, here's, I want to give you a few things. First is this. Sin crept into David's life because David deflected responsibility. And sin always creeps into our lives when we deflect responsibility. The Bible tells us in the beginning of this passage that at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men. Now, David, as a king, had a responsibility to be with his men during wartime. There was enemies that were trying to attack Israel and God had placed David as the one in position of leadership and responsibility for the kingdom. But David deflected that responsibility and in deflection opened up a pathway and a doorway for sin to creep into his life. He was not about the business at hand. If David had been taking care of responsibilities, then he would not have fallen into temptation. If he had been out there with his men, he would not have an opportunity to look down from his roof. What are our responsibilities as Christians, as believers? As brothers and sisters, as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as as laborers and lights into the world. We don't think about this often, but God has given us eternal life. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit and he has given us his word. And as such, he has given us responsibilities to carry out. We have the responsibility to avoid temptation. We have the responsibility to put on the armor of God. We have the responsibility to feed ourselves spiritually. We have the responsibility to avoid improper relationships. We have the responsibility to go and be fed by other believers in church or online, or whatever we have to do. We have a responsibility to guard our hearts. We have the responsibility to listen to the voice of God and be obedient. We have the responsibility to serve God wholeheartedly. And those responsibilities form a wall of protection around our life. And when we deflect those responsibilities, then we're breaching the wall of our life, we're breaching the protection, and we're susceptible to the enemy's attacks. I heard a pastor talk one time about how he had several friends in ministry who fell into moral failure, and he asked them what happened, and He said, how did you get into the situation where you made such a terrible mistake? And they all said it simply started because they stopped praying and reading their Bible. Responsibility deflected is always an opportunity for the enemy to pounce every time. We are in the position we are in today because of the choices that we make. So when David is reflecting responsibility, it opens the door, the pathway for sin to enter his life. Second thing we need to see is this, is that sin crept in because David got comfortable. And sin often creeps into our life when we get comfortable. How many of you like to be comfortable? You know, you don't like to be hot. How many of you hate being hot? Charity used to be that way. It's got weird. She's changed a lot over the years. Now she has two blankets on her side of the bed. But when we were dating, I kid you not, I would go pick her up because I had to drive and we'd drive to college together. The windows would be frosty and she'd turn on the air conditioner. I am not kidding. Why? Because she doesn't want to be hot. Now she goes from being hot to cold and hot to cold over and over again. She says, I'm hot, you know, and she does, starts doing this. And I don't know what this does. This, I, I don't feel a whole lot here. Okay. All you're going to get is a carvel tunnel in the wrist, you know, I mean, so she's doing this and she's like, I'm cold. And I'm like, well, stop doing this. You know, we like to be comfortable. David had got to a place in his life where he was comfy in the palace, and sometimes when you get comfortable, sin can creep in. Comfort in and of itself is not a bad thing, obviously. That's why we, we do certain things that we do. That's why we we like the AC. That's why we like taking and throwing the blanket into the dryer on a cold day. That's why we like drinking, you know, the hot chocolate and we like smooth car rides, and we like, you know, nice TVs, and we, we like all these things. However,. Sometimes comfort is not always a good thing because in the spiritual realm, comfort can harden our hearts. When you get too comfortable, there's a dangerous side effect. Your heart starts to get hard because you start only worrying about yourself and what makes you feel good and what you like. In the spiritual realm, comfort can harden your heart. Comfort is a way of making us callous to the things of God because we stop worrying about others and we stop worrying about God and we start only worrying about what makes us feel good. Make no mistake about it, Jesus preached a life of blessing. He said that he came and give life and life more abundantly, but Jesus never preached a message of comfort. And there is a stark difference. He told us to take up our cross daily, And follow him. Life abundantly is a life sold out to Jesus, not a life of spiritual comfort. Because comfort can breed selfishness. David was comfortable in his palace. He was not where he was supposed to be. And he had a selfish thought. This woman is beautiful and I want her. His comfort had hardened him to God and he lost the sensitivity to the tugging of the Holy Spirit on his heart. When we get comfortable, we start to lose the sensitivity of what God is tugging on our heart. Maybe you're sitting here and you're asking yourself, well, am I comfortable in life? This sounds like it's something I need to be wondering about. What what questions should I be asking myself? Just ask yourself, how do you respond to things that should make you uncomfortable? Like, how do you respond when there's nothing but immorality that is on TV? Are Are you entertaining yourself with that or is it breaking your heart? Are you obedient to God in every area of your life? Are you you obedient in what you say and what you do? Are you obedient in your finances? Are you you actively living out for him? Are you starting to just slip back into whatever you want to do in the moment? When you hear a message on sin, do you think about the person across the aisle? Or are you thinking, God, search my heart and make my ways known to me? We need to stay tender before God because we cannot afford to get comfortable. We need to be in a place before God, not out of fear, but out of submission. where we say, God, prune my heart, rip back the curtain, show me what's on my inside. Show me what the condition of my heart is because I want to be more like you today than I was yesterday. David reflected, deflected responsibility, got comfortable Then he started compromising. The third thing I want you to see is this, is that sin crept into David's life because he started to compromise in the little things. And sin always starts to creep into our life when we compromise on the little things. Sin never just happens in life. There's always a series of small steps that get you there. Think about it. A kid. Have you ever had a kid that tried to pour their own cereal? It's a nightmare, right? I mean, they pour the cereal. It goes everywhere. More of it ends up on the counter and the floor than in the bowl. And then they get the milk, and they slosh it from the, you know, the, the refrigerator over to the counter, and they pour it everywhere. It gets everywhere. It's a big old mess. And they're doing this number to get down. They eat. And, you know, It's just mess. You walk in, and you say, what happened in here? And the kid's are like, I don't know. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Well, there's a series of things that created this massive mess. And a lot of people don't make big mistakes in life. They make a lot of little things that equal into a big thing. A lot of people that make massive mistakes in life, they ask them, how'd you get here? And they utter the words, I don't know how this happened. And the truth is it happened one step at a time. David's affair with Bathsheba started in his mind way before anything happened in a bedroom. Sin always weasels into our life, small compromises at a time. David started noticing her bathing, then he looked for a while, then he lusted after her, then he sent for her, then he wooed her, then he slept with her, then he tried to cover it up, and then he killed her husband. You see, there was a progression. One thing led to the next thing, which led to the next thing, which is one compromise after another compromise after another. The devil doesn't need to tempt you to embezzle millions of dollars from your company. He just needs you to get you to cheat on your taxes once or twice. He doesn't need you to be tempted to have an affair. He just needs you to compromise what you look at for a while on your phone or a relationship you have with a coworker. He doesn't need to tempt you into believing that God isn't there. He just needs to compromise enough that you don't even really think about God. Because he knows if he can get you to compromise on one little thing in your life, then he can get you to compromise in another. And then in another. And then in another. Why? Because we as humans... Get comfortable the more we step out. Think about this. I mean, you're going back to kids. I'm not trying to use kids as my own analogy this morning, but when you're trying to feed your baby the baby food and they don't want to eat it, what do you do? Try to get them just to take a little taste of it. Or if you have a, like Knox, when he's there and he doesn't want to try something new that we're at a restaurant or something, like yesterday we went out and we ate the onion petals at Longhorn, come on, somebody, onion petals. And he's like, I don't know if I want this. We said, just take a little bite. Because we knew if he could take a little bite, he'd be hooked and he'd want the rest of them. And guess what? We got him to take a little bite. And the hook was set. And he ate about half the, a dozen of them. And that's all the enemy needs to do is just a little compromise in your morals. And you won't be able to stop. Now, temptation, when that comes, what we have to be aware of in compromise is that we always want to justify our compromise with our poor decisions. We always say, oh, I can handle it. Going back to the onion petal thing, if you put a thing of onion petals in front of me, I'm going to eat the whole thing until they're gone. You know, I, every time we go to a Mexican restaurant, I tell Charity, okay, now I'm only going to eat like 10 chips, three baskets later. You know what I mean? Why? Because once you start, you can't stop. You can't stop. But we try justifying going to the Mexican restaurant. What I should do is say, don't even put the chips on the table. Because if you put them here, I'm gonna eat the whole thing and then I'm gonna ask you to bring more. What I should do is tell them from the very beginning, no, don't even put them in front of me, because I will eat all of them. But I justify it in my mind. No, I got will, I got self-control, I got willpower. Yeah, I do have willpower. I'm gonna will eat all these chips. That's what I'm gonna do. (laughs) The results are always the same. You realize that you just blew it. So then you try to manage the situation. So you've justified it in your mind long enough. And then you try to cover it up. You know, so while Charity goes to the bathroom, I try to get him to bring a whole other basket of chips. we <laughs> he's like, look, we didn't eat any. They're all here. That's exactly what David did. His rationale made sense. He's like, I just sent these guys off to war. She wasn't pregnant before he was gone. I got, I'll get Uriah to come home. And I'll cover it up didn't work, though, did it? Because what David underestimated was that he thought every other man was a dog like he was. And what he forgot was was that his buddy Uriah was a man of morals and a man of integrity. And he wasn't going to go home. He wasn't going to be in comfort while his buddies were out there fighting a war. So as we try to manage our own sin and cover our tracks, it always causes us and forces us to commit more sins. And the end result is always the same. We end up hurting those who are closest to us. Our biggest sins always hurt those closest to us. So many times we try to say, well, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just going to do what I want. We all know that's a lie. The most painful experiences in our lives were because someone else hurt us. Think about it. The worst memories, the worst experiences that you have in life are because someone else sinned against you. And so we do the same thing to other people. Uriah was a close champion, and yet he died because of David's sins. Our sins always cost people closest to us dearly. Uriah's life was wasted because of the sins of one man. Fourth thing I want to is this sin crept into David's life he tried to cover it up with his own self-righteousness. Sin in our lives is also, oftentimes covered up with a form of self-righteousness. It's super interesting. You should go read this when you get home. In the next chapter, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David about his sin. And he tells him, he says, hey, King, I got a story to tell you. There was this rich man. He had a huge flock of, of sheep, and he had all the cattle. He, had all, all the, he was very wealthy. So then there was a poor man over here. He had one little lamb. That's all he had. It was a family pet. They loved this lamb. The kids played with it. I mean, this was the only thing they had. They were poor. This was it. So the rich man, he had a friend come in, and he wanted to put on a feast for him. And so the rich man looks out into his flock and says, I can get one of my own, or I can just steal the one from the the poor man, because what's he going to do to me anyway? So he goes over there, and he steals the lamb from the poor man, kills it, and feeds his dinner guests with it. And David gets furious. He says, I want to know who this man is because I'm going to make sure that justice is served. This man deserves to die for doing what he did. And Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. Now let's talk about Nathan for a little bit. That that was a man right there To to have the courage and the confidence to go to the king and look and point in his face and say, you're the man. You see, what happened in that moment, though, is this, is that David is exhibiting some righteousness. He's angry at the injustice he sees. The problem is that sin had blinded him to his own unrighteousness. Jesus warns us of this. He says, you can see the speck of dust in your brother's eye, but you can't see the plank sticking out of your own eye. Jesus is being hes hes being facetious. He's like, you got a two by four sticking out of your eye, and you're saying, look at your little speck of dust over there. So when we get to this point of the story, we think that David's life is ruined. He's deflected responsibility. He got comfortable. He compromised time and time again. This thing led him down a path where he tried to cover up his own sin and hurt those closest to him. And it would appear like his life is ruined and his kingship is over. But that's not the rest of the story. Worship team, if you want to come back, I want to wrap it up with this. In chapter 12, 2 Samuel, verse 13, as we said a moment ago, Nathan is sent from God to confront David of his sin. And in this moment, it all comes crashing down. All the mistakes, all the sin come crashing down around him. And this is a moment of transparency. And what's interesting is he has to make a decision. God is now confronted him of his sin. He can try to deny it. He can try to cover it up. He can try to deflect again. Or he can get humble and he can repent. And in Psalms 51, David pours out his heart to God in confession and in repentance. It's pretty interesting if you think about it. I had a pastor one time that pointed this out. Never thought of this. If you go read in Psalms 51, it says... There's a little heading at the top, and it says the Psalm David, something to the effect of what the psalm David wrote after he had an affair with Bathsheba. So he sent it to the worship leader to sing, and this was one of the songs they were supposed to sing on Sunday. Now, I want you to think if you were that worship leader. Like, you knew David, you knew Uriah, you'd been in the king's court, and you're like, now hang on a second, Bathsheba was Uriah's wife, and he's dead, I mean, like... Imagine being on that staff. You know, they talk about being in an awkward situation. And then he gets a letter one day from the king, and he starts reading these words, and he's saying, let me just read it to you. If you have your Bibles, you can look, Psalms 51. That heading says, to the choir master. Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So that's the heading. And here's what he says Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your word and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I have brought forth this iniquity and in this sin, again, did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and an inward being and you teach me wisdom in a secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, blot out my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart of God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What's amazing is that David turns in repentance and humility to God. Most people, when they get caught in their sin, they would have went to God and said, God, just don't take the kingdom from me. God, don't don't let anybody find out what I did. God, don't let let this thing become known. Keep it under wraps because I'd be so embarrassed and so humiliated. Don't take the palace. Don't take my stuff. David's response was so different. He went to God and he said, God, remove my sin and don't take your spirit away from me. It's almost as if David was saying, God, if you take the kingdom, then so be it. God, if everybody finds out, I don't care because it wasn't against them I sinned. I sinned against you. Please forgive me of my sin. Blot out my transgression. Create in me a clean heart. Just don't leave me. I want you more than anything. Such a different contrast than what you see a lot of times in scripture and what we even do in our own life told you that this message is about David's greatest moment. You might say, well, how how in the world is this his greatest moment? I mean, all this bad stuff. why, Why would we talk about his failure? Because David's biggest failure also became the best story of God's grace in his life. Even though David was in his darkest moment, this was the brightest moment in his life for God's forgiveness and his grace. Why? Because even after all the sin, all the mistakes, all the failures that David committed in his life, God forgave him and God restored him. He didn't leave him. He stayed close to him. And it gets even better than that because in the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years after David lived, in Acts 13, Paul's preaching a message and he is quoted as saying, David is a man after God's own heart. God inspired that message. So God chose to remember David for being a man after his own heart instead of choosing to remember David for his failures. That's who God is. Some of us in this room, maybe sin is way beyond the point of creeping in. It is taking up residency inside of our life. And we're so scared to make things right because we think we're gonna lose the kingdom. If people found out what I did, I'd lose my family, I'd lose my job, I'd lose the house, I'd lose the car, I'd lose all of it. But let me tell you something. We can't worry about that stuff. David had a lot to lose. And yet David came before God and said, God, against you and you only, I've sinned. Create in me a clean heart, humble repentance goes a long ways. When we look at Jesus, Jesus went to that cross and took stripes on his back for us so that the old self, the old sin, old mistakes could be washed away. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. In Christ, the old person is gone. That gives us hope today. Because what David found is that God could create in him a clean heart. And what we find when we come to Jesus in our sin and our failure is that God does create inside of us a new heart. We become new people. Psalms 103:12 says that God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, meaning it is without limit. So why do we hold on to the shame of the old life? Some of us here, it's not that we're living in sin currently. It's that we have shame and guilt from past sins. You need to know that just as God restored David, God restored you when you came and you humbly confessed and repented of that sin. God created a new thing inside of you. So you can't hold on to the guilt and the shame of the past hard to run to your future when you're carrying the dead body and the old man behind you. Scripture says the old is gone, but some of us are trying to hold on to that. God has restored us. I know I've covered a lot of material today, but I believe that it's time for some of us to make sure that we're walking, we're running to God. If you would please stand with me today and After you're standing, would you please just bow your head and close your eyes? I know it's Labor Day weekend. We probably have things to go do this weekend. Most of us are off tomorrow. But I think we need to push pause. As you're standing there with your head bowed and your eyes closed, you're just reflecting on life, I think there's three responses for us today in this room. David would have never ended up where he was if at any point in the process he would have just stopped before loving God and said, search me. And maybe you're here today, and you're looking at your life, and you don't don't see any weak spots. You look at your life and you say, you know what, I I don't see any sin in my life. I don't don't see it. But the thing about a blind spot is we can't see a blind spot. And I think it behooves us to simply stop every now and then and come to an altar and say, God, just search my heart. Show me the blind spots in my life that I can't see. I I, I don't want to sin again. I don't want to get down there. God, just... Turn the floodlight on my heart and and make sure that my heart's right. That's a prayer that I personally pray almost every day. Say, God, search my heart. Point out any weakness or flaws in my defense so that I can be right for you. And I would hope that every single one of us in this room would be willing to come to an altar and say, God, search my heart. Search me. Because if we keep that humble attitude before the Lord, then nothing can take us by surprise. But the second response for some of us in this room is that, we, we have some sin in our life. It's weighing us down. We have a lot of conviction and guilt in our life. And it's time to come clean and repent before God. He is a God who loves you, and He's gracious, and He's merciful, and He wants to free you. If there's one thing we learn from David is that God is gracious, and God is merciful, and He will forgive you when you humbly come before Him in repentance. And the third response is this. Maybe you have in the past come before God. You say, God, forgive me of my sins. But you have been carrying this shame and this guilt that you just can't seem to get free from. Maybe today God wants to free you from that shame and that guilt.